0: We're delighted to introduce our first Small Talk speaker of 2015, Holly Gramazio. Uh, and Holly is a game designer with a particular interest in games for public uh, spaces, events and installations. Uh, as well as a seasoned speaker and writer, uh, Holly also curates game events and creates her own games in both digital and physical space. So recently, Holly's created a series of installations across East Durham, uh, and uh, along with a digital block-pushing news game, pornography for beginners, which I've had the pleasure of playing myself and found it very informative. Um, so, as a game designer, Holly has a closet filled with ribbons, camo nets, and loops of red elastic, a huge laminated stack of Anglo-Saxon insults, and lots of different multicolored balls. So she's perfectly placed to talk tonight about games for cities and play. So please welcome Holly. <clears throat>
1: Hello everyone, as as, uh, you've just been told, my name's Holly Gramazio and I am a game designer. I'm going to talk very briefly about a few examples of different games I've made, just to give some sort of context for the kind of thing I do. And I'm going to talk in more detail about designing games for cities and what we can do in cities to encourage people to play in them and and why we'd want to do that in the first place. So, one game that I made recently was Pornography for Beginners. This is the... um, one safe screenshot from the whole game. This is a very quick uh, block pushing puzzle game, essentially about the recent changes in pornography laws. There were some changes which mean that you can no longer do in-streaming pornography that you're charging money for, things that you were able to do until recently, which include, for example, getting urine on any human body anywhere, getting female ejaculate anywhere on a human body, because maybe that's urine we just don't know. So (laughs) So there's some really peculiar changes in the laws. And the way this game works is you try to combine various body parts which are only five by five pixels so they're relatively unrude but they're still clearly body parts in acceptably sexy ways to make the penisometer grow and when you've done enough sexy things without triggering any unsexy things in a level you progress to the next level gets trickier and trickier as it goes on This is a game that I made recently for a festival in Poland called Play Public, And the way that it works is that one person or two people come into a hotel room and find a hotel room that's basically just sitting there in the way that a hotel room does when you come into it for the first time. It's immaculate and clean and everything's made up and there's coffee cups that haven't been touched. But on the desk there is a computer with a, a... sort of an interactive short story about the hotel room and that sends you exploring in different areas of the hotel room playing little physical games with the person you're in there with hiding in cupboards and gradually building up a soundscape based on the things that people have previously done in this hotel room so you get this building like slightly oppressive in the end sound of tens of other people and the things that they did in it. It's kind of about the peculiarity of the hotel room as a temporary space and the way we treat it as like a private browser window, this thing that's constructed for one use and then you leave and everything gets stripped away and boiled and it's like it never happened. And then sometimes I do stuff that's purely physical and doesn't have any digital elements. So sometimes that's things for 40 or 50 people, sometimes it's things... 12,000 people like this in New Year games. This was a couple of years ago now in Edinburgh on New Year's Day for the lots and lots of people who are in Edinburgh on New Year's Day without anything to do and the trains aren't running on the 1st of January. So the council sets up a different thing each New Year's Day. This is when I worked at a company called Hide and Seek. It was 2012, it was us. They asked us to do a thing that would engage people in a city-wide game, so there were some elements that you could play in the museum, there were some things that you could play in St. Giles' Cathedral a, a labyrinth with a minotaur in the middle that you had to sneak past and each time you played a game you won tokens which you'd put beneath the statue of your team trying to accumulate as many as possible for the final announcement at the end the, um, the Doonies, the red team, won because they were better so people like playing in cities. There's a lot of benefit that we get from, not just from play, but from urban play in particular. So this is a game that ran in the 1920s. It was a publicity stunt for a newspaper called the Westminster Gazette. The, this is a fo- there are not many pictures of this. This is a photo taken from a site called Planet Slade, which has done a lot of research into this super peculiar game. some of you might know the phrase you are so and so and I claim my five pounds that comes from this game, the Westminster Gazette would publish a picture of a man, a fuzzy picture of a man named Lobby Ludd he was an actor with a pipe and a hat and he was just this little picture of his face and it would publish clues about where Lobby Ludd was going to be on a particular day and if you happen to find Lobby Ludd with a copy of the Westminster Gazette and say you are Lobby Ludd then you would win five pounds or in some cases more and people played this in their tens of thousands this is when Lobby Ludd was in Richmond Park 50,000 people turned up when he went to seaside towns special trains would be put on to, tr- to carry people to the seaside town where he was going to be and there was, he started off in Brighton the first time he did it, and he had, they had no idea how popular it was going to be. So he got panicked by this massive density of people looking for him and ended up like panic and go, panicking and going onto the pier, which is a really bad idea because you can be trapped, right? And he saw someone looking at him and went, oh, no, I've been spotted, and only managed to get out of it by striding up to the man who'd spotted him and saying, are you lobby Lud? and confusing him so much that he was able to run away back off the pier and be more sensible about it. Men who looked a bit like Lobby Ludd report being trapped in telephone boxes by people hammering on it going, you're Lobby Ludd, you're Lobby Ludd. (laughs) And you know, It was the 20s and the 30s, £5 or in some cases up to £50 was a lot of money, but not enough money that 100,000 people would go to Brighton for the tiny chance of it. It was also about the act of playing and being in a place and looking at it with different eyes and having this sort of secret aim and this mission to accomplish that was exciting and different. People do like playing in cities. It, there's, a, there's a sense of community around it. There's the long, long period where on Shrove Tuesday, in particular in England and on New Year's Day in Scotland, lots of towns and villages would play mass football games where you'd have one ball that had to be got into one of two goals once, and that was the entire game. You'd have hundreds of people playing, each trying to get, their, get the ball into their team's goal but the goals would be a really long way away. So there's a village near Derby where one of the goals was a stile a mile out of the village in one direction, and another of the goals was a mill out of the village in the opposite direction. And there's stories of things like someone grabbing the ball and jumping into the river because they were the strongest swimmer in the village, and they knew no one would be able to catch them in the river. But they were the person who had to take it to the mill up there. So the other team ran to the mill, put the wheel on and turning, churning up the river and sending lots of water downstream so that the guy could not safely swim to the mill. This huge community-wide thing where um, in some cases just the men and the boys, but in many cases the women and the girls as well, would all get together and play this, this thing one day a year. Playing in cities gives you new perspectives on the places that you're in. When it snows and you go out and start scooping up snowballs, things that are normally just tiny ledges that are boring because they're not wide enough to sit on suddenly become like places of immaculate stored snow that you can scoop up. And you begin looking around you with new eyes for the little places that have been untouched, the things where nothing disturbs it. And these suddenly become valuable just because you've got a store of snow there that you want to scoop up and throw at someone. It's a, a way of being active in a way that integrates into the places that you normally are. This is a game called Bounden by a Dutch game studio. And the way it works is that you both put a finger on either side of an, of an iPhone. And there's a little bubble in the middle that you're trying to keep balanced in the middle. And to do that, you have to start moving it. And then you have to move it further and further and further and further. And then there's, it end up having to go like this and do various other things. They worked with a ballet company to figure out how it worked. And it's just this tiny little game that you can play anywhere that gets you moving and accidentally dancing just while you're trying to keep this little bubble in the space in the middle of the phone. And it gives you a sense of ownership of the place that you're in and a sense of caring for it and being safe there. There's, there's the clever trick that the brain plays where you don't usually play unless you feel safe somewhere and then because we're all fundamentally really stupid, if we're playing somewhere we're convinced that we must be safe and at home there and it must be in some way comfortable to be in. This is a picture of a run of a game called Journey to the End of the Night which is a huge chase game that runs all across cities. I put this here because I played a game of Journey to the End of the Night when I'd moved to London from Australia about eight years ago. I'd been here five months and I didn't really understand how it connected it up up and it still felt quite large and alien and peculiar. And I went with a few friends to this game that I knew nothing about. Outside an abandoned warehouse in Wapping, we all gathered and we were given white armbands. And we were given maps with six checkpoints across the city. One of them was in Kensington Gardens, which we got to at about 11.30 at night. One was on the banks of the river at Waterloo and you had to get there before midnight because then the tide would come in and you couldn't get there anymore and that was all basically straightforward enough until 20 actors with red ribbons around their arms emerged from the warehouse and they looked very energetic and threatening and much fitter than me and one of them was on big springy leg things that let him run really fast and we were told that they would be chasing us And if they caught us, they would take our white ribbon and give us a red ribbon and we would become one of them. And we would turn on our former allies and try to capture them as well. So the game got harder and harder as it went on and I spent four hours running frantically around London, which is not something I normally do. In the rain for half of it. Out of breath and my my legs ached for days afterwards and for weeks afterwards when I saw someone wearing red out of the corner of my eye, I would jump and be a little bit scared and there's, there's places that I still can't walk through without feeling a bit like it's an arena of combat but that was the moment when London started feeling like home when I was running around fr- frantically in the rain down a road away from two strangers with red armbands I went no this, this is okay I can, I can live here this is going to be all right so playing in cities is kind of important and interesting and a thing that a lot of people have an urge to do and that they enjoy when they get the chance to do it. So why don't we do it more? Well, there's a lot of reasons. People are worried about feeling silly. People feel like a play opportunity is intended for kids. There's lots of occasions where adults will be doing something. A kid will start joining in and the adults will step back and go, oh, oh, it's it's for children. I don't want to steal the fun of the children which, given the amount of time children generally get to spend having fun compared to adults, is is a bit of a silly thought process, but there you go. Worried that it's not safe, or people just don't know what to do, what they're allowed to do, what the affordances of a space are. And so there are ways to encourage people to play more. I'm going to look through a few different things that people have done and different ways that people have tried to encourage play in cities and try to pick out a few of the reasons why they work. So you can do a thing where you put an installation in a place and try to add play on top of it, right? You can put a thing there that's that's playable with. This is an installation near Millennium Bridge, between Millennium Bridge and St Paul's. I have no idea how long it's there for, or if it's been there for years. I have no idea who put it there. I was walking past on the way to somewhere else to a meeting I was running late for. But stop for a minute and watch this group of people here. There's just these four things along it. This one wobbles a little bit. This one kind of wobbles a bit more and spins around. This one you can jump up and down on. And there was this group of four or five people just trying them all out and trying to squeeze onto each one. And then they finished and wandered off. And then another group of people came along and did the same thing. Just this tiny on the ground that makes you wonder what it's for and you can go on it and do a fun thing for two or three minutes and come up with your own responses to it and move on can do things like this which is a project I was involved in in Scotland with a choreographer called Brian Hartley called Scotch Hoppers this was an installation that ran for a couple of weeks during the Commonwealth Games as part of the cultural programme it was, some, like, you can see in the background there's lots of stuff painted on the street that sort of derives from hopscotch, but we've got new rule sets applied to it. There's At the back we've got a big long track that people can go down, and here there's a circle where people can play more competitive games. So, for example, on this you can send people walking around only on the yellow ones, and then other people on the white and the red. And once you've got them all going around in a circle, you say, OK, now if you can tag the person in front of you, they're out. And it turns into a, a frantic chase. So it's a sort of a structure that allows for lots of different sorts of play. And in some ways it went really well because lots of people came along and played and enjoyed a lot of the different games. Some of them wanted to do very active, competitive things. Some people like here wanted to do more cooperative things where you're working with other people to, tr- to choose your own rules about how to negotiate the space and then carry out the tasks that you've set yourself successfully. The downside of it was that there really needed to be someone there to explain and encourage. It was a very temporary explanation temporary installation and if it had run for longer it would have got super expensive to have someone always there it's really easy to get people to play when you can stand in front of them and go hey everyone gather around this is what you're going to do but trying to get people to play when you've only got the city there to to lure them into it is much harder this is a thing at the south bank center set of slides which i liked because of the way it explicitly gives permission to adults to take part. There's different widths and different heights of slide, the whole family thing across the top. It doesn't necessarily speak to people who who don't have kids, but it's a thing where if you are there with your children, it's telling you that you are meant to go down the slide as well. This is a thing where you are one of the intended users. And that's a really good way of dealing with the extent to which adults tend to step back from play and feel like it's not for them. Having different heights of things, things that are too big for children to manage, things that are... Even things at different heights where adults could play with either of them or children can play with either of them, just the visual signifier of these are two distinct things sometimes makes adults feel more comfortable and more like it's within their rights to play. And this, which is a set of swings in Montreal where the artists have put 21 swings in a huge big line and each one makes a different note as you swing on it and this is a really lovely and I think very successful installation partly because it draws on the swing that everyone understands so you know what you're meant to do you see a swing and you're not worried about doing it wrong Um, the notes mean that you can play cooperatively with other people if you want to but you don't have to The commitment to sitting on a swing is really low. Like maybe if you're feeling a bit self-conscious, you can just sit down on a swing and check your phone because that's all you want to do. There's just a swing here and it's like a seat. And then maybe you want to swing a little bit or maybe you don't. And maybe get carried away with it and stay on it for five minutes and, and maybe you don't. But there's a real continuum of how engaged you can get with it and you don't have to make a big conscious decision to go, right, I'm going to visibly play now. And finally, there's just so many of them. So nobody ever feels like they're hogging someone else's turn or stealing someone else's fun. There's a lovely swing by King's Cross, I think at the moment, definitely at least over... Um, summer and autumn, which is within a birdcage, and it's a nice swing. It's got a good swinging action. I enjoyed it a lot, and after four minutes I thought, there are other people around. I should probably hop off and give one of them a go. And That's generally the pattern of use there. You feel like, if you're there too long, you're hogging someone else's fun. So just the immensity of this, I think, is really key to its huge success. So you can take a city and put a fun thing in it, right? That's one way of doing it. You can also take a city and try to draw elements of play out of it, get people playing with the things that are already there, which is a, sometimes a little bit trickier. This is uh, an installation called On the Bridge by an artist called Teambeck, Beck, and it's mostly a blue-lit bridge, but if you move on parts of it, that part will go pink. And if you run really fast across the whole thing, the pink fades slowly enough that you can just about manage to light up the whole bridge pink. Or you can coordinate with other people to have every second section pink then jump over to that and have it sort of flicking back and forth. So just this simple interaction that you can't help triggering if you're on it means that you can start playing with it in a load of different ways, again, cooperatively or on your own, without having to consciously acknowledge that that's what you're doing or make a big step of going, I'm going to see how fast I can get across this bridge. So it makes people respond to the bridge in really different and interesting and varied ways and this is a weird bridgy sculptury thing by Victor Passmore called the Apollo Pavilion which is in the middle of a housing estate in Peter Lee and about half of the people there think it's great and the other half hate it. I've got this up because this connects to a project that I uh, worked on this year over late summer, early autumn, called Games for Places in East Durham where we picked five different locations around East Durham and designed really site-specific games to play on it, things that took advantage of the the characteristics of the space. So this is a peculiar, peculiar building with lots of strange sight lines and lots of places to hide. So with this we had games where you could scurry behind things and lurk, and we had games that were about painting coloured blotches, lily pads, to match with, it, with the lilies that were already there, on the footpaths and in the games you would stat, you would look at a lily pad, guess how many other lily pads you'd be able to see from it, make estimates of what the different sight lines would be like, then stand on it and count and see if you were right. And other little games that are just drawing from the environment, things you could play without being told to but maybe wouldn't think of. We playtested those and stenciled the rules on the walls and on the ground and all around for a couple of weeks One of the community centres that we painted them on has asked to keep them, which was really nice. This, by the way, is a grade two star-listed building and it is really, really nerve-wracking to put a load of removable paint on a grade two star-listed building in front of the council's vandalism team, going, yeah, I'm pretty sure it'll come off, waiting 20 minutes for it to dry and then giving it a go. It was fine. Took a little while, maybe three scrubs, but it did come off. And a third way you can go, a way that happens much less often, is to build it in from the start. To think when you're designing a space about the affordances for play and what people might do that. That Obviously this happens with playgrounds all the time, but in spaces that are intended for use by adults, it's much, much rarer. I've got a few examples. Obviously giant chess sets aren't the most innovative form of play but that's still a thing that invites people to have a different aspect on and experience of the space they're in and the giant ones aren't even particularly more interesting than the rows of chess sets that go around in the corners of some parks just on tables it's still something that says hey this is a place where play is intended where you're encouraged to do this kind of thing This is some fountains in Portland that were originally designed for people to clamber all over. They look dangerous, but they're not dangerous. The architect deliberately tried to heighten the sense of peril while still ensuring as much as possible, but it was no more dangerous than any sort of vaguely off-kilter set of blocks to climb around in. Nowadays, there is a sign saying no wading, which was not there when they were built. People do still climb all over them. This is a plaza in Adelaide, where I'm, where I'm from. This is called Festival Plaza. It's outside Festival Centre. And as a sort of a public space where people hang out... It's broadly considered a failure because people don't hang out there because it's bright and sunny and there's not a lot of shade and it gets really hot in Adelaide. And also it's about 40 seconds walk from a huge, big expanse of grass on the riverside with a load of gazebos and cafes and trees and all that sort of thing. So no one would actually come here just to sit around. But the people who do use it are using it for play. They're running around and trying to hide behind things. They're sort of standing on top of these and calling out directions to each other and jumping around among them. The affordances of the space, the different ways that you can interact with it encourage people to come up with their own playful interactions. And finally, as an example, I've got this, which was in Olympic Park. I don't know if it's still there after the refurbishment. This was just sitting there in the middle of some paths and almost all of the children and about 10% of the adults that I saw walking across it and sitting there for 20 minutes just going, gosh, this is amazing, picked a colour and tried to stick to that colour when they were walking across it. There wasn't a sign up there saying, hey, pick a colour and try and jump across. People weren't telling them to do it. They just went, the natural thing to do when you walk onto a a space like this is to go, oh, I'm, I'm, I pick blue and try to jump your way across, only sticking onto the blue. So this in terms of embedding an intended form of play into a space with no instruction about it I found really super impressive. We know a lot about what makes a public space pleasant. There's been a lot of research about this, right? We know that food is good. We know that varied sitting positions are good. We know that people like to sit near flagpoles and statues and things that they can give a focus to. We know that being able to see a place from the street makes more people go onto it. A tonne of research has been done on this for decades and decades. People have filmed huge time-lapse things and sat there counting how long people sit on different benches. But we don't know much yet about what makes it playable. But we are gradually finding out more. So things like tangibility, the ability to touch stuff, is really important. Like flexibility of use is important. Optionality is important. Mandated play isn't play, right? If you have, this is why I never do team building games. If something's mandatory, then it's not really a game. There's stuff about responsiveness. We know that people like swings and slides and things that they understand how to use. We know that people like sight lines and being able to dodge behind stuff and be visible and invisible and see a thing and then not see a thing. We know that people like being able to play while they're standing, that just being able to walk over something or jump up on it and jump down and not have to make a big, visible, conscious decision to play will get more people playing. And we're gradually learning more and more and more about what makes this possible, and I hope that soon we'll be able to embed play into cities from the beginning more efficiently. Thank you.
0: Great. Thank you for that Holly. I think a few bits that kind of resonated with me were um how play can give you new perspectives in cities and kind of make you look differently at, at, at areas and also kind of how curiosity can drive engagement especially around simple interactions that just make it really easy to get up and have a go. So, I'd like to throw it to the floor if anyone has any questions.
1: Hi. Um I was just wondering whether you know when the next sort of thing in London is happening, so um <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of small scale game events happening all the time. There's a site called something like London Game Events, which tends to have a listing um it's mostly video game focused but when there's something more physical that's usually in there as well hopefully i'll be doing something in sort of june or july but not confirmed yet i can't say where or exactly when but hopefully june-ish i have a
0: probably very simple question how do you test your ideas do you have um user groups prototypes how do you
1: a mix of things sometimes in early stages i try to get people who have a bit of a game design background to come along and give it a go because game designers are going to try to ruin your game more than anyone else and so being able to try it out with them is really useful and then also obviously test with the sort of people who will actually be stumbling across it which sometimes means just going to the place and seeing who's around and going up to lots of strangers and saying hey i wonder if you'd help me try out a thing and and Actually usually they do. When I was in East Durham there was a group of teenagers near one of the places we were trying out games and I thought these are like super cool teenagers. These are teenagers who are sitting at the side practicing the lyrics to incredibly obscure songs smoking and yelling out swear words at each other constantly. I thought there is no way I am asking these people. They are not going to be interested in trying out the games. But after we'd been, just me and the um, artist I was working with and the uh, associate game designer had been trying things out for a few minutes, they came over and asked what we were doing and we explained and they asked if they could join in. It was kind of extraordinary. They helped us try things out for 45 minutes and were not shy about saying this one's boring, but they were also really enthusiastic about saying this is great, you should definitely have this one. And like, are we allowed to play this once you've gone? Yes, yes, obviously you are.
0: Hi. I thought that was really, really brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, I I, I love the way that you split it up into the different ways that, um, you know, you can make a city playable. What I was just thinking about was, you know how even if um, you have the most boring space in the world and you put a bunch of kids in it, they will find a way to make that place playable, Mm. whether or not it has that tactility or, you know, there's a commitment or non-commitment, all that kind of stuff. Um, is there? A, do you think there's a way to kind of induce playfulness in people without having to do anything to the to the kind of space itself? Or another way of asking that question is like, when you walk around the city, are you? You're probably different to ask, because you're probably seeing ways of playing. Like, how can we? How can you induce that in other people? Or, I don't know if that's a good.
1: I think once you get into the mindset that playing is a, a normal use of a space you do begin to see more things i worked on a project a couple of years ago called 99 tiny games where we designed 99 games across london three in each borough and so the councils would send us locations that they suggested we used and we'd go and visit those locations come up with a game there then write out the game rules and put it on a huge big sticker in the middle and some some places you'd turn up to and go oh my goodness, there, there is nothing interesting to do here. This is, this is literally the most boring sidewalk in all of London, except for that last one that they sent us. There is nothing. There, there's like a bus stop 10 metres that way. Occasionally someone comes out of a shop on the other side. But as we got into the swing of it, we began to notice really small variations in the places that we went to like strange little patterns on the pavements that we wouldn't have noticed normally perspectives like things through mirrors the different ways things reflect things that you can find a way to hook play onto so i think if you can habituate people to the idea of play as a normal thing then they start seeing more opportunities
0: thank you very much to holly (laughs)